to Children's Church. Uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 this morning, so take your Bibles or your Bible apps and type in Romans or or flip to the New Testament, depending on which which type of Bible you're carrying this morning. And uh, Romans chapter 13, starting in verses 8, going down through uh, verse 14. Let's read the Word of God this morning. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment has summed up his word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know now, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Then let us, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray this morning before we get going. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come into your presence today and we ask that you would use uh, your holy written word. That you would speak to us from your word. That you would talk to us uh, out of these very verses Uh, that we would hear what you have for us, and that your spirit would be uh, at work in in our lives today, that you would use this to draw us closer to you, and that we would respond uh, in an appropriate way. Give us, give me this morning uh, the words to say. Uh, Give us the ears to hear what is uh, truly in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been uh, out on the road or on the street and you see someone standing around uh, and they raise up one of those giant signs and and they walk around saying, the end is near, the end is near. Uh, And it's usually like a cardboard sign and it's sloppily painted. And and usually the people that are doing that, they're kind of disheveled and you're kind of like, okay, wonder wonder what's going on with them. They look a little crazy there. The end, the end is near. Uh, We're at a passage this morning that reminds us the end is near. And Paul is not being crazy. Paul is speaking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he kind of is trying to jolt us. He's trying to say, wake up. Take this life seriously. Take your Christian life seriously. Walk in a way that, that honors the Lord. Because the Lord is going to return. We're to live for Christ like the end is near. Uh, I don't know if you're a country music fan or not, but Tim McGraw has a song from a number of years ago where he would say in one of the lines, uh, he said that, I hope you get the chance someday to live like you were dying. We are all going to die. And are we ready to meet the Lord? The end is going to come one way or another, either in our death or in the return of the Lord. And the question is, are we awake? Are we ready for it? Are we living like that day is going to dawn? You can see verse 11 is kind of a transition between two themes in our passage this morning. Verse 11 says, besides this, you know the time that the hour 
has come for you to wake from your sleep, for the salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. You see, Christ is the motivation for Christian living. And Christ is the means by which we fulfill God's law. Meaning you have to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way as your Savior before you can even begin to think about loving your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Romans chapter 8, Paul has said in verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law uh, weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for our sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Meaning, we don't walk according to that manner of sinful behavior, but we walk as people having the Holy Spirit. And the only way that that is accomplished is through knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. In fact, Paul has said that keeping these commands... It's impossible. You hear a good command, you hear a law, love your neighbor, do not murder, do not steal. And it's impossible for us to keep those to the level that honors God. For Jesus had said, murder. Hate in your heart is like murder. And so none of us keeps the law of God. And here then again, our motivation is to be in Christ. And out of being in Christ, we live this way. And we're to live for Christ, then like the end is near. We have two points this morning. Uh, First, because of Christ, be zealous for loving others. So one of the ways we need to wake up, one of the ways we need to be ready here is to love others. Now, this is one of those things that sounds very simple. I think we would all nod our heads and agree and say, yeah, yeah, we need to love people. That's, that's, that's good. That's important. But then you start to think about how hard it is to actually love others. Paul says this, no, owe no one anything except to love each other. So do not owe anyone anything except love. What does he mean by that? Well, if you connect with the context of of how this passage has been flowing and and unfolding, you'll remember last week in verse 7, we looked at it says, Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And now Paul comes along figuratively and says, you know, don't owe people anything except owe them love. That, that we should not be in debt to people, that we should not have outstanding bills. If you are an employer, you should not be stingy in paying your employees. If you owe the government money, if you owe someone uh, respect, if you owe them honor, if you're supposed to be kind to them, if you're supposed to treat them well, don't be deficient in any of those things and be in debt, whether literally or metaphorically. Rather, accept for... A debt of love. Meaning that we always have an obligation to love other people. And we should look out at people and look across the room and our our fellow church members and our family and our friends and, and, and have this understanding that I can never give them enough love. 
that I am always in debt to them in terms of the love that I should be owing them. And that's not just the feelings of emotion, but that's in the way that you treat them. That's in the kindness, the gentleness, the caring for them, the listening to them, the helping with their needs. Don't owe anyone anything, Paul says, except love to each other. This is the mindset that is to be in us. Then Paul will say that the law is actually fulfilled in loving our neighbors. So we have all of these laws. We have the commands of the Old Testament. And Paul references here some of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not uh, commit adultery. Do not covet. That's kind of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, And he's saying love fulfills that. Look at verse 8. Owe no one anything except uh, except to love each other for... The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not coven, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is one of the strongest arguments, I think, in in, uh, Paul's writings here, that there is a continuing relevance for the law of God. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. God was mean and nasty. And oh, those those ten plagues, you know, how gross was that today? The, The river turned to blood. We say, okay, that's Old Testament times. But God's commands are still relevant to the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we recognize there's a number of ceremonial laws and all of those things that we're not under anymore. Jesus himself has told us that. But this moral aspect, don't wrong people, uh, don't kill people, uh, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Those are still commands of God. And why are they commands of God? Because they really fulfill one of the major driving purposes of God's law, of God's instruction to us. And what is that? Love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus has said that there are two great commandments, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, And he said to him, speaking to uh, someone that was trying, yeah, this is someone speaking to Jesus, asking uh, what, yeah, I messed it up. This is Jesus. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you look at the Ten Commandments and, and, and you, know, you say, well, that's a lot to memorize. Well, guess what? All you got to do is remember two. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. What's the problem with that? None of us love God with everything we got. And we've all had times where we don't really love our neighbors. And so God sends his son to save us by dying on the cross. And out of that, he puts the Holy Spirit in our hearts and changes us and makes us uh, new people. And then he enables us to carry out some of these things. And Paul is saying, it's not that complicated. You don't have to have like a a list of 50 things that you need to do. Just love 
your neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is coming from God. This is who he is. It then becomes a reflection of his character that we love, like God loves. It is fair to say, I think, that selfishness is the root of all sins. And the desire to gratify ourselves and and satisfy something inside of us is is ultimately what causes us to continue to live in sin. Let's just unpack this a little bit. Is murder selfish? Yeah. You assume that you have the right to take somebody's life. That I can do what I want here. That I can get vengeance on them, maybe. Is stealing selfish? Well, obviously, you want something and you just take it, whether or not it belongs to you. Coveting, of course, is selfish. Adultery is selfish. Even anger, in some ways, when we're grumbling, when we're complaining, when we're jealous. The root causes of these things are are things that are going on in our hearts. And so we need the Lord Jesus Christ to change our hearts. At the heart of all sin is a lack of love. Either a lack of love for God or a lack of love for other people. Paul is telling us here, if we love one another, we fulfill the law. We're keeping the commands of God. So one of the ways that we can love one another is that we're just happy for people when they have things. So the opposite of coveting is when you delight in something that someone else has and you rejoice with them. So someone comes in and they have a new job promotion and, and, and instead of grumbling and getting angry and saying, I wish I had that job or why did I get passed over? You rejoice with them. We say, That's awesome. That is so great. I am so happy for you. Uh, they get a new car and instead of being like, well, they always get new cars and that doesn't seem very fair. When am I going to get a new car? You say, hey, that, that is so cool. God gave you a job. God gave you gifts. You were able to spend some of your money, get a nice car. That's really cool. Want to give me a ride in your car? But rather than being jealous and coveting, rather than hating, rather than stirring up thoughts of of, um, jealousy, we are to be a people who love. 1 John 5, 2 uh, and 5.3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For those of us who God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done a work in, his commandments aren't to be burdensome. Sometimes they feel that way. Uh, I gotta care for this person. You know how difficult they are to deal with. But God has given you the Holy Spirit. And more than that, the Lord Jesus Christ has died on the cross to free you from your sin and to free you up to love other people. Let's ask this question as we think about applying this. Who is my neighbor and how do I love them? Who is my neighbor? I should love my neighbor as myself. 
The assumption there is that we all love ourselves in one way or another. The assumption is we don't love our neighbors as we should. The broadest definition of a neighbor would just be people that are around us, people that we come into contact with, whether family, whether friends, whether literal physical neighbors, whether somebody that you meet on your job every day. Uh, We're not thinking of just the neighbor in terms of the house uh, next door. The best illustration in the New Testament to answer the question, who is my neighbor, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the parable that Jesus tells? Do you remember how he tells how there's a man who's beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road? And then there is a a priest that comes and he sees that man lying on the road and he crosses over to the other side and he walks past that person. Then there is a Pharisee. So these are like these are like the pastors and the Bible scholars of their age. And the Pharisee sees that man lying in the ditch. And they know the Old Testament law says, you know, you can't touch someone that's dead because uh, that would make you ceremonially unclean. And so they cross to the other side and they walk past because they think the guy in the ditch is dead. And then there's a Samaritan who comes along. And, and the Samaritans were like the outcasts of society in, in that day and age. Um, they were considered vile. They were considered sinners. They were considered uh, horrible people, unclean, all of, all of those things. Uh, you have the best of society, the Levite and the Pharisee, and you kind of have the, the worst socially in the society. And the Good Samaritan sees the person lying in the ditch, and he helps him up. He cleans him off. He puts him on his his donkey or his camel or whatever it is. He takes him into the local town, puts him up in in a place, has put oils on his head, bandages. Uh, It's kind of the equivalent of of seeing someone on the side of the road and and loading them into the back of their car where they're bleeding and they're bloody and, and they're making a mess everywhere and you drive them straight to the emergency room. And then you find out when you get to the emergency room that the person doesn't have insurance. And you say, don't worry, I'm going away, but I'm going to cover their hospital bill for them. That's essentially what the Samaritan does. And at the end of that, because Jesus has been asked, well, you know, who is my neighbor? At the end of that, Jesus says to the person uh, who has asked him, he says, which one of these three uh, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the person responds to Jesus and says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Part of this is incriminating on the guy who asked the question. Because the guy who asked the question, well, who is my neighbor, is looking to parse it out and say, well, I don't want to have to show an obligation to this person or that person. I want to know who really I should be taking care of. Because I can't take care of everybody. It's kind of a a selfishness behind the question. And here you have the person in Jesus' parable, his story, who's the worst of the worst, societally speaking, and he shows mercy and love to someone in need. Who's your neighbor? Somebody that has a need, and you're around them, and you come across them, and you're able to take care of it. You might think of your neighbors in multiple levels. Obviously, your family is, is, in a sense, neighbors that you're obligated to love. You love them, you serve them, you sacrifice for them, you show them mercy. 
And believe me, sometimes it's, it's family members uh, that are the hardest to love sacrificially. Because, you know, the old saying, you, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And they, they grate you the wrong way. They're always saying something that gets on your nerves. Maybe they even take advantage of you. We still have an obligation to love them as we love ourselves. Your church family. Your church family is your community, your neighbors, people that you're, you're supposed to love and take care of and, and look out for their needs. Uh, in some cases, our church family is closer to us and should be closer to us uh, than our physical family. Particularly if you have some family members that are unbelievers, but you come and you gather here on Sunday with fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have more of a spiritual connection with the people around you in, your, in this room than you do sometimes, in, in some cases, with other people in your life. And so we have an obligation to love and love them as we love ourselves. And believe me, if you've been in the church long enough, there are people, all of us included, that are sometimes hard to love. There is that person in the church sometimes that rubs us the wrong way. Believe me, I'm a pastor. I've had people say things to me that you just want to like grab them and shake them because they just, oh, I can't, that wasn't very loving that they said that. Guess what? You have an obligation to love, to care, to show compassion, to think of their interests before you think of their own. To come back next Sunday and and smile and be nice to them rather than holding a grudge. Someone in the church gets something really nice and we're not jealous. Saying, well, why didn't God ever do that for me? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then lastly, the third kind of category of range is the non-believer. The person that you meet in your daily life. Maybe they're your literal neighbor. They live next door. Maybe they're the person at your work. Uh, Maybe they're, they're someone down the street. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we certainly want them to, but we still have an obligation to love them. And maybe they do some horrible things to us. And maybe they even treat us really bad because they know we're a Christian and they insult us or something. Love them in real and tangible ways. Maybe you have to forgive someone. Maybe you have to go and make peace with someone. Maybe you even have to overlook some way that someone has has wronged you in the past and and kind of just let it go and not hold it against them, but love them in real and tangible ways. Second this morning, because of Christ, wake up and walk in the light. So one of the big ways that we are walking in the light is this, this debt of love that we are to have to all people. And part of Paul's emphasis here is to say, pay attention. Live like the end is near. Because of Christ, wake up and walk in the light. Verse 11. Because this you know, the time that the, because this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So, so why should I be so concerned about loving others? Why should I have this flame growing inside me that says, i got to love other people and show them the love of God because I know what Jesus has done for me. He loved me and died to save me from my sins and I know that He is returning. 
that Jesus really is coming back. And so the idea here is wake up and get to work loving your neighbor. Now, some of you have kids. And you know what happens when you wake up a child in the morning. Particularly, it happens with our teenagers. You go into the room and you say, it's time to get up. There's school this morning. And you go downstairs. And you go back upstairs five minutes later. And they are still under the covers. And you turn on the light and you say, hey, come on, get up. You've got to get to school. And you do this again. And you're ready to grab them and pull them out of bed. Or maybe you pull the covers off the bed. Maybe you even uh, splash a little water uh, onto their, their face. Now, don't um, parents do this and then say, well, pastor said I could in the sermon, so it's, it's all okay. But you know how it is. You don't want to wake up. So it is with our, our stubbornness. So it is with our, our, our desire to just kind of not grow in the Christian life. To not work at loving other people. You know, I'll put it off until tomorrow. I don't want to do that today. You know how hard they are to love? It is hard to wake up and get out of bed. We often think that we can put off walking in the ways of the Lord. But what does Paul say? The Word of God says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Speaking here of the salvation that is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So, Romans 5, 9, Since therefore you have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. And that's when Jesus returns. Uh, Romans 8.23 talks about our bodies growing inwardly as groaning inwardly, excuse me, as we eagerly await the redemption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, or 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God is not destined to us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of a, a truism to say that something that's going to happen in the future is nearer than it was yesterday, Right? Uh, if you have something coming and it's coming on Friday, uh, every day it's going to be nearer than the day before. If you don't know when it's coming, every day is still closer than the day before what it was. And so some people say, well, you know, Jesus Christ hasn't come back for 2,000 years. So uh, this must just be a bunch of baloney uh, that Jesus is coming back. And the Bible actually answers that question. It says, God doesn't count slowness as some count slowness, but a day is like a thousand years in the timing of the Lord. The idea is we don't know when the Lord is going to return. And what seems like a long time for us, 2,000 years, that's just a mere two days for God. It's, it's a metaphor. It's, it's imagery. And the point of the imagery is be ready because the Lord is going to return. It's like getting your teenager out of bed and saying, you can't miss the bus. Be ready. Because the salvation from Jesus is coming. Paul uses this imagery in 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Some of you ladies know how that works, right? 
you're going along, you're very pregnant, and all of a sudden it's like it's time and we got to go to the hospital. Uh, we almost missed one of our daughters. We got there in plenty of time, but my wife on the way was saying, like, you better drive faster. Paul continues, but you bear, uh, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day, and we are not of the night uh, uh, or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk in, at night. So we're to walk in the light, not in darkness. Why? Because the morning's coming. It's, it's right on top of us. Romans thirteen twelve. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, and let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I want you to picture in your mind for a moment kind of a, how a sunrise works. You ever go out before the sun is up and, and the teenagers right now are saying, no, absolutely not. If you've ever gone out before the sun is up, you have that kind of dawning that happens before the dawn. Before the sun comes up over the hill, uh, you start to get little bits of glimmer and light in the sky, particularly to the east. And you'll still look to the west and you'll still see some darkness. The sky will kind of change from black to blue. And then maybe as you go towards the, where the sun is coming up, it'll, it'll be hues of, of orange and, and red. But maybe on the dark side towards the west yet, you'll see some of the stars. And it'll almost look like night. You're, you're right in that moment where the night is ending. And, and technically, maybe it's still light. And the day is coming, but technically it's not day because the sun isn't up over the horizon yet. And the day is going to inevitably come. You can't stop the sun from rising. Jesus is going to come and you can't stop the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, from coming back. We are right in that moment where it's obvious that the darkness has been defeated. Sin and death have been paid for on the cross. And we need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the light is coming. And the question is, are you on the side of the light or are you on the side of the darkness? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have put on the armor of light. Now start living in that way. Start uh, living as one who walks in the light and cast off the works of darkness, the works of darkness. First Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. And you can think also there of the armor of God language in Ephesians. We put on an armor of light. Walking in the ways of the Lord because God has done something in our hearts in giving us salvation. The commandment of love is connected to this imagery of light and darkness. First John chapter two. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. How do I move from darkness to light? I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to understand that I am living in darkness, that sin separates me from God, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. Because God loved me. He loved before the foundations of the world. And so at the right time, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ here to save sinners. As Paul says, of which I am the worst. We all have sins. We're all ultimately in our hearts tainted and corrupted by this. And the darkness pervades us. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he puts the light in you. Then he also expects us to manifest that light in how we love other people. And so if you walk into church today and, and you say, well, yeah, 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 I, I believe in, in Jesus. Yeah, 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 that's cool. Jesus, rah, rah, rah. And yet you hate brothers and sisters in Christ. Not like in just an abstract way, but like you have somebody that's a Christian and you despise that. Not just somebody that rubs you the wrong way. We all have a little bit of that. But somebody that you're like, ah. And you want bad things for them. And you, you just curl up your nose at them. And you're not dealing with sins that are coming from your heart. John says, if you're walking like this with hate, you're walking in the darkness. And that's a sign that the light that you said was in you isn't really in you. Because if the light is in your heart, it will shine itself outward in the way that you walk. You see, the light being in me is grounded in what Jesus has done. And I received it. But when the light is in me, God shapes me and changes me so that it shines outward. And how does it shine outward? We should be people of genuine love. Walk also in the daytime. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. I have to read you this quote because it made me laugh when I read it. it was from, it's from a commentator talking about the culture that they lived in. You think about the culture that we live in. You think about the parties and the drunkenness and the sex that goes on at all levels of society. And people just uh, enjoy it and live it out. Paul, uh, Michael Bird says this about the time that Paul lived in. Greco-Roman revelry could make a frat house toga party look like a convent by comparison. Or as I like to call it, Las Vegas during spring break with Caligula as the MC. You think about just everything. The the culture that Paul lived in with that kind of partying lifestyle and and drunkenness and sex and, and, and having a good time and just living it up for yourself and gratifying just whatever you want to do, whatever makes me happy, is exactly like the world that we live in. 
like the people that we encounter, that maybe some of ourselves are in or have been in, that we live for ourselves. The problem with that Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Are Dying, uh, isn't just that it's country music. Uh, the, pro- the problem is most people, when you think of living like you're dying, it's all about the adrenaline rush. It's all about the pleasure. What can I do for myself? What's going to make me the most happy? For some people, it's drinking. For some people, it's drugs. For some people, it's sex. For some people, it's their career. For some people, it's going to church. And they're not doing it because they love God. They're doing it because they think that'll look good for everybody else. You can go to church and be doing it because you're gratifying sinful pride. And if you don't believe me, just look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. That's what Jesus rails on them for. The point is this. What are you living your life for? Let me make two comments here about sex and sexuality since Paul brings it up. He says that we're not to to walk in sexual immorality and sensuality. First, Paul is talking here about sex that happens outside of the marital union. Uh, God made sex, and so we don't have to fear uh, healthy sex or talking about it in appropriate uh, contexts where a husband and wife have surrendered themselves to each other in marriage. You see, sex isn't about me getting something out of it. It's about me giving something, my body, myself, to my spouse because I have promised my whole self to them. Do you see how different that is from the world that we live in? Teens, young adults, even uh, middle-aged people. What is the purpose of sex for most of our culture? To make ourselves feel good. To get something out of it. Sensuality, in that sense, is, is fundamentally getting my own pleasures from it. And certainly, I think we need a, a redeemed view of sex. That it is good. That God has it for a purpose. But the purpose isn't about serving myself. Let me say this then as an extension. And this is the second thing then. By definition... Sex outside of marriage is not loving. So we're talking about loving our our neighbors as ourselves. And and a lot of times in in our day and age, people say, look, you know, as long as two people love each other, as, as long as there's consent going on, that's fine. That's that's good. Have sex. We shouldn't want to deny people pleasure. We're not up here to deny people pleasure even in the church. But pleasure is to be rightly channeled in the purposes that God gave it for. We need a picture of of the beauty of sex and the design that God made it for. And so sex outside of marriage is not by definition loving. Why? Because you're not giving yourself to that person. Uh, You haven't made the commitment. You haven't said, I will stick by you no matter what. For sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. There, there's a beauty to sex when you've already given your whole self and saying, I'm going to live my life not only with you, but for you. That, that your interests are now my interests. And so, genuine, true sex is not of the darkness, 
It is loving and it doesn't fall short of the glory of God. And sex, the way the world tends to practice it today, it is about sensuality. It is not, by definition, loving, but by definition, taking and getting. And it falls short of the glory of God. You could say this about a whole number of things that people derive pleasure from in our day and age. Paul says this, speaking of eating and drinking, he says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether I eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We need this vision in the Christian life that we can do all things rightly ordered for the glory of God. We're not just about having a whole bunch of rules. Do this, don't do this, don't do this. We're about saying, how do I love my neighbor as myself? Can I throw a party? Can I eat some good food and drink? Yeah. But have a vision for doing it for the glory of God. Why do most people throw parties and have alcohol and lots of food? For themselves, for myself, for what I get out of it. God has given us all things so that we might return and bring glory to God and honor him. Paul has also warned in this passage, not only the quote unquote big sins, orgies, drunkenness, sex, but the little sins, not quarreling. Not being jealous. How easy is it to say, well, you know, I've never had sex outside of marriage. I've never gotten drunk. I've never done drugs. Uh, I don't I I don't dance. I don't I don't get any near any of that sin. But in our hearts, we quarrel with other people. We get jealous. Maybe at home we lose our temper. That's rocks of darkness, brothers and sisters. James chapter four warns of this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on to say, and when you do ask God, you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on yourself, your own pleasures. Put on Christ. Look at verse 14 and we'll end with this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The first thing you do to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is you ask yourself, do I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners? And I know I'm a sinner and I put my faith in him. The second thing, and it's an ongoing process that you do to put on Christ, is you work to love others. You learn to to walk in his ways, to respond. This is the growth of the Christian life. And he says, make no provision for the flesh. And when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not talking about our bodies, the skin and bones that we have. He's talking about that, that sinful desire and urge within us. Make no provision for it. Don't make room for it in your life. Don't find ways to, to fit it in. Don't try to control it and say, well, you know, a a little bit of this pleasure isn't a bad thing. A little bit of drunkenness is okay. I, I got my handle on this. 
I think of a, an analogy. I don't know if this analogy is going to work or not, so, so bear with me. Uh, but, ladies, I hear one of the biggest frustrations and complaints that you have with dresses are that they have, they have no pockets, right? Nothing to, to, with your skirts, nothing typically to, to put things in your pockets. The designers did not make provisions for pockets. They did not want you to have pockets for whatever evil reason they came up with uh, the design. We've put on Christ and the robes of Christ's righteousness. And Christ's righteousness and the robes that he's given us have no pockets for storing sin in our lives. Make no provision for it. Make no room for it. Work on getting these things out of your lives, not because you are strong, not because this is about pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and fixing our own lives. We are all sinners, myself included. And God is changing us because of what Jesus Christ has been done for us. And when I get to heaven, and I stand before God. I am going to be there not because of how I lived my life, but because God did a work in me and put Christ on me. Christ's righteousness. Christ's character being reflected in me. There was a man, and he enjoyed sensuality. He lived for it. He bragged and he boasted about it. In fact, he would even boast about sins that he hadn't done because he liked to show off and he didn't want his buddies, his friends, his chums to think that, that there wasn't something uh, that he hadn't engaged in yet. He ended up having a, a, a child with a, a woman outside of wedlock. And he would pursue lusts and greed and all of these things. And God brought him to the end of his rope. He was feeling weight of conviction that he shouldn't be living this way. And he was in the garden one day and he thought he heard voices of children singing. And they were singing, take up and read. Take up and read. And because he had been going to church a little bit at that point, he actually had gotten a copy of the Bible. And he happened to take out the Bible and he opened it. And he opened it to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. And he read the words that we've been talking about. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he looked at verse 13 and, and he knew that was who he was. And he looked at verse 14 and he knew he needed Christ. And he says this, I had no wish to read Father there was no need to, 
For immediately I reached the end of this sentence, verse 14. It was as though my heart was filled with light of confidence and the shadows of doubt were swept away. It was his conversion that he understood his sin and he understood what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for him. And he said, I need Christ. And Christ came into his life. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put on Christ? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to come before you today and ask that you would work in our hearts, uh, that you would convict us, that maybe some of us have sins that we know of right now that are going through our heads, that we need to make peace with you, or maybe we need to make peace with a, a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Lord, teach us. Show us our great need of Christ and then show us the wonder and beauty of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, conquering sin and death and the darkness so that we could be in the light as you are in the light. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.